Hello, my name is Deborah Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of American Anthropologist, and this is Anthropological Airwaves. Welcome to Anthropological Airwaves. My name is Kyle Olson, your host for this episode. This time, we have two interviews to share with you. The first is between Sarah Rendell, an MD-PhD student in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania, and Professor Adia Benton of Northwestern. And the second is with Sharon Jacobs, a graduate student in linguistic anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania, and Professor Miriam Tickton from the New School. Both of these conversations concern anthropology's relationship with its different audiences on the one hand, and to the discourses and practices of humanitarianism on the other. Together, they show us how anthropologists can fruitfully intervene in pressing debates and use our particular tools to help others both through our writing for public audiences and directly through our research practice. The major theme that ties these two interviews together is that both interrogate the binaristic thinking that can and does repeatedly crop up in humanitarian discourse and lucidly demonstrate how these binaries reproduce the injustices that humanitarianism is supposed to redress. These binaries figure people into different roles, such as rescuer and rescued, refugee or migrant, deserving versus undeserving, figurations which, often as not, reinscribe rather than challenge white supremacist relations of power at a variety of scales. This sobering conversation highlights the power of images, tropes, and unintended consequences, and should spur reflection on anthropologists' responsibilities vis-a-vis -vis both public discourse more broadly and our interlocutors more specifically. I hope it is as thought-provoking for all of you as it has been for us. Hi, I'm Sarah Rendell, and I'm here with Adia Benton. Adia, my first question for you, since you're currently co-editor of the public anthropology section of American Anthropologist, how you think about anthropology's audiences. In other words, how do you reckon with audience as you're writing, tweeting, <laughs> making and sharing multimedia forms, and also evaluating public anthropological work? That's really interesting. Um, so Yarimar and I kind of worked through what we thought up our public was. Um, and we thought it would be people who are interested in some kind of critical analysis that anthropologists are good at about current events. So for example, we have done some things about um, the elections, healthcare. We've looked at congressional spending on a variety of things like climate change. And so some of those things haven't come out yet, but we actually, one of our big um, series, uh, one series that we put out is um, Deprovincializing the Sustainable Development Goals, which actually focuses on those 17 goals and whether the U.S. is what it, what it looks like it's doing. Is it doing well on the sort of global report card? Those kinds of things that actually are um, relevant, um, interesting to people, um, in terms of like their commitments, their own political commitments about all of those issues. So um, we are looking forward to getting some uh, really interesting essays. They're short, um, <laughs> short essays on gender-based violence. We have one up on healthcare. We have a few coming out on natural disasters. And I put natural disasters in air quotes <laughs> <laughs> because they're not quite natural as, mm -hmm. as, you, as you well know. So, you know, we think about an educated public or a curious public. And that, mm. and I think sometimes we can't anticipate what that public might look like. We can only anticipate that there are people who are possibly interested in these things, that they'll read these things and they'll actually click through and learn more. So 
as you're saying that, I'm also thinking about how curiosity has a timeline or at least a pace. And I think that one of anthropology's strengths as a discipline is that we slow down and critique things that are normally being taken up and carried forward. Um, so I'm wondering, to be relevant to broader publics or to stimulate curiosity, does anthropology need to have a different pace? You know, I think there's a time for everything, not no pun intended. <laughs> right. So <laughs> let's just say that um, I think there's a time for various kinds of information and analysis. Right. So there's some things that we're quite practiced at. So even if we for some of our own personal research or research that we're interested in developing the depth for, we take our time. Mm-hmm. That's part of the whole thing. Spending the time learning the people, learning the thing that folks are interested in, learning the mechanisms, the networks, whatever it is. But when we do this, we're doing analysis every day. And there are certain things that we can look at or situations we can understand or interpret in the Mm -hmm. moment. And so, I mean, in other words, we practice this all the time. We process it all the time. And sometimes it's time to talk about those things Mm. in the moment. And sometimes we have to sort of wait and see. Um, The pace of the work, I think, is dependent upon the thing, the issue at hand. So, for example, it was, I would say, it was very easy for me to comment upon the health system of Sierra Leone during an Ebola crisis, having been there for several years and having continued to work and read about those things. Now, could I have um, explained all that was wrong or right about the Ebola response? No, I couldn't have. Um, It would have taken witnessing that response over two years to be able Mm -hmm. to do that. And then another year to write about it, right? Another year to work through all of the arguments. And so um, I think there are different kind of different scales, different temporalities, always at play. And it's clear when you have the time to think about something. And it's clear, I think, um, when someone has taken the sort of long, deep time to really analyze and learn something. I think it's really, you know, a hot take is a hot take for a reason. It's like fresh mm-hmm. out of the pan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, sometimes, and sometimes not very delicious. <laughs> um, sometimes it's not even took. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, actually, I was thinking of a really good case of this. In the aftermath of the Trump elections, for some reason, we're getting this kind of bombarded with the sort of let's look into the minds of the Trump voter, the Trump supporter or whatever. Mm. And they always go to the same town and talk to the same people. Mm -hmm. And they're like, how do you feel now? How are you feeling about this thing now? And it's still the same. Mm -hmm. My point being, though, is um, there were these two articles about uh, actually there are multiple articles about white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one that came out in the New York Times where everyone was really upset because the person went, did the article, interviewed the same guy, um, came out with nothing new. And he didn't talk about the white supremacist group that he worked with. He didn't talk about the evolution of that group. He didn't talk about its reach. He didn't talk about all of these really Mm -hmm. critical things. A few months earlier, there was a Derek Black article, the guy who I think Mm -hmm. his father was the founder of the Stormfront and he was this sort of... Um, white supremacist prodigy Mm. he talks about his trans they talk about his transformation into someone who's sort of i guess at this point an anti-racist and or at least an anti-white nationalist Mm, mm -hmm. and but they talk about it they talk about the ideology of the storm front they talk about what it is to it took to cultivate like how do you cultivate a following how do you generate 
uh, sort of an ideology? How do you generate propaganda? How do you how do you bring people into the fold? How do you reproduce this model in different kinds of places? And it was a very different kind of article, but it also clearly took a lot more time. Mm-hmm. That's the one that sticks. The one that was written by the that was written in, it was uh, published in the New York Times that looked like it was done in a couple of weeks in the matter of weeks just get sort of chalked up to being part of the New York Times fascination with white supremacy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it doesn't stick as a, like as a memorable story. It's, it's just a trope. It's a, mm-hmm. a repetitive motion that the New York Times is doing. It's, it's spinning its wheels. Mm-hmm. But that one piece in the Washington Post is going to stand on its own as a sort of, um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the weeks forward, as people start, as people continue <laughs> to write about white nationalists as if they're mm-hmm. some sort of foreign alien invader so right. that's that's the i think a, an example of you know what a sort of deep analysis and deep curiosity produces it's a, it's a very different thing yeah which in this example doesn't depend on moving super slow or super fast as much as it does on a certain way of looking mm-hmm. um seeing asking imagining right i think there's a i think there's a question of depth hmm. like how deep can you go Lots of people can just sort of gather quotes and like and pull something together. But this is about like, OK, so asking the and why and why and why mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to find all the people who, who might connect those dots and drawing that story out. So I think depth rather than breadth is a really large part of this. That point about um, depth rather than breadth actually makes me think about one of the pieces you've written that uh, this is your article called Risky Business, that worked through the realm of images to actually bring your readers into a depth of analysis that of humanitarian interventions that you've seen have been like avoided, like the stuff has been kind of like o- avoided or um, uh, overlooked in like critiques of humanitarianism. And so in this piece, you use risk as a central analytic with which to tell a visual story. And in this story, you illustrate how designation of risk with racist um, with racist notions of contagion and danger or like rescue and mm-hmm. risk constructs white moral superiority and also builds racial inequality of lives within humanitarianism. Mm-hmm. And your argument is that we can't talk about different binaries that emerge in humanitarian interventions without seeing how these are foundationally white supremacist um, in their organization. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your choice to use images to interrogate the mm-hmm. unnamed racial ordering of humanitarian interventions. The way that I, I guess what I, what happened is I, I started with an image. So I, as you know, I, I worked in Sierra Leone and I had like a Google alert on for Sierra Leone and this was when I was writing I think I was writing my dissertation Mm. and so of course I'm like what's going on and is (laughs) did something completely change (laughs) that will totally take my dissertation off it's you know take it off the rails Mm. and I had to give a talk so I was giving a talk in I think in my department or somewhere else and and so I was like oh what am I going to do I have this picture that I'm so puzzled by and the picture was Mm. of Salma Hayek breastfeeding a black baby a Sierra Leonean baby and yeah, I didn't actually, well, I don't know if it was a picture as much as it was the outrage machine <laughs> generating a visual for me. 
But I found the video, I think it was on ABC, and I took a screenshot and I was like, well, what, why are people so infuriated about this? Or why are people sort of freaking out? Is it because it's Salma Hayek and her breasts and people love those? Or is it, or is it about, you know, something else? And obviously they, they kind of focused on this act, you know? So it was, it was like she was both caregiving and she was giving care. She was saving a life, but she was also putting her breast in a black baby's mouth. Mm. Like, what is up with that? You know, she had just had her own kid. And, and and so there's this whole thing about like this reverse sort of nanny, like sort of mm. wet nurse. Wet nurse, isn't that? It's, it's a, a reverse wet nurse. It was, or yeah, like reverse in the sense that usually the racial, right. the it's racial optic, like it's usually the of use of, of black or brown women's yeah. bodies to support the nutrition mm. Of, mm. Of, of a white baby. Yeah. It's often the image I've seen. And so, um, you know, I was sort of interested in the outrage, the sort of repulsion, the but so, and, or hey, look at what this amazing thing that she's doing. It's beautiful. And so it was but it was couched in, oh, she went to Sierra Leone to talk about te- neonatal tetanus and also to save lives hmm. um, as a part of her work as her work as a UNICEF spokesperson. And so I was intrigued by this idea that she was being called a humanitarian, not only for traveling, you know, sort of making the treacherous journey to, to Sierra Leone, which they kind of, they made that, that was very clear that that's what they, they were saying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, look at her, look at the beautiful starlet going, going into the depths mm. of, you know, the white man's grave, which is what Sierra Leone was called in the 17 and 1800s. Um, and then she does this other risky thing. Um, in fact, that was like the headline in some things. Oh, breastfeeding someone else's baby doesn't hurt you. Um, and, and so I was really intrigued by that. And, but then I was also intrigued by the power of that image to generate that response and what that response, what is that response telling me about the directionality of this thing? And so I was talking to this friend, again, like sort of panicking about a paper while I'm in paradise. Mm. And, and she said, oh, she said, if this, if this had been me, if that was my baby, I would be really annoyed that this mm. random, like random foreign lady stuck her boob in his mouth. I'd be mm-hmm. kind of annoyed, like kind of gross. And I said, oh, that's really interesting because you don't see that in mm. the reports at all. Mm. And so I kind of I started asking, okay, so what is that about? And what is, why is that not, this is an innocent child, a baby. Usually the, the baby is an innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it that he's supposed to be posing risk to mm-hmm. her? And why is that the frame? Or why is it all about why is it all about her? And and when he is does figure in into it, it's not only that he might be risky, but it's also that he's being saved. Mm-hmm. And so it's that's the only way he kind of functions in this piece. Mm-hmm. And so after that, the same friend sent me, because I was not in Boston at the time, but was would be heading back, she sent me a the cover of the Boston Globe. And I was like, what is this? And it was a baby mm-hmm. being giving getting receiving mouth to mouth resuscitation from it's a black baby, <laughs> mind mm. you. Mouth to mouth resuscitation from a white firefighter in Boston in nineteen sixty-eight, mm-hmm. which was a year of racial turmoil, particularly in Boston. And this was in Roxbury. This is a a, a housing project that primarily had black occupants. But it was about the reunion of these two people. And what was really interesting about it was they were, so the reason that this was on the front page was because someone found the picture in the archives and said, does anyone know who this guy is? And does anyone know who this girl is? Does anyone know if they're still alive? We found it. It's extraordinary. And what's extraordinary about it? What's extraordinary about a fireman doing Doing his, his job. job. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And so 
that again became my thing. Like, why is it so extraordinary that he is doing his job? And and you know, it's I think there's something to be said about the fact that a lot of black observers that I talked to said, ah, it's really cool that he would do that. You know, like sometimes mm. we think that they're not going to come and save us. Mm. One piece. But the other side is, oh, look, firefighters are good people. Look mm. at what he's doing. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, of course, when they interviewed him, he's like, I was doing my job. Mm. But, he, but then they but then they asked him, do, do white people, would white people go into this neighborhood? Nope, sure wouldn't. <laughs> and so it was a really, again, it was the, the sort of, this guy's entering the sort of, I don't know, white man's grave or something. Yeah. Again, in the same kind of, mm. um, which I found odd because, right, the firefighter's supposed to be saving everyone. But the idea that there's a kind of differential valuing of life mm-hmm. and that ri- that the rescue is the risk, mm-hmm. um, I think is is really significant and something that seemed to be coming out of these photos, not just their, the photos themselves, but the circulations and the comments and the ways that people responded to them, the way the stories that they told about those images, mm-hmm. the curation, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they were mm-hmm. doing. Like, um, because I kept looking through forums to see how people talked about this thing. And it was always really odd. There were like these really weird, it's somewhat weird racial jokes. Like, oh, he saved her life and then she stole his wallet. Or, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and, and so there's yeah. like all of these really interesting kind of racial there's racializing happening in the photo, but racializing also happening in the responses the response. to them, right? Um, all, often related to risk and rescue and mm. often racializing the notions of risk and the notions of rescue. So who can be saved and who can be doing the saving? Whose lives are put at risk? Whose lives are perceived to be at risk at the moment of encounter? Mm-hmm. So these were the broad themes or questions that emerged from not only talking to people or, or reading what people say about those images, but reading those images together. And then thinking through all of the ways that those same kinds of dynamics played out in these settings that I lived in, um, where the humanitarian is supposed to be, like the, the, the humanitarian act itself is a risky act because of where one goes and who one saves. And who's the one going. Right, who's yeah. going and yeah. who's saving. Thank you. And one of one of the things that that becomes so clear in your analysis, because you're working with these images that you know are connected through babies um, and like what black babies like make audiences say do think mm-hmm. the idea that a neonate like a newborn black baby could pose a risk to Salma Hayek is laughable. <laughs> but there's also something that happens in the images if i remember right the image with the firefighter in 1968 giving um, mouth mouth resuscitation to the baby in roxbury you could sort of see the mother in the background but she was a little bit like blurred and then with um salma hayek's breastfeeding of the baby in sierra leone we have no idea where where the baby's mother is um so i'm wondering if like is Built in with this risk and rescue, there's an erasure of black motherhood in some way, or I guess a a disregard for it, an ambivalence. Mm-hmm. What, what do you? I I think that's right. I actually think I I think it's it could be disregard, but certainly the background, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, it, the, so, however, the black mother fits in. She's in the background mm. and maybe helplessly watching, and so 
yeah, so I wasn't sure what to do with that. I, so I actually, I think the woman in the, the firefighter photo might not have been the mother, but a rel- another relative, um, I think uh, is what I remember from the story that, you know, there's a way in, there's a way in this thing where the, the like the mom is either just sort of absent, mm-hmm. um, again, in, and possibly in the background and certainly not, um, not intervening, mm-hmm. maybe even the cause. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe even the cause for the distress and for the need to rescue, mm. because I think that's also one of the, the controversies around Salma Hayek is like, so where is the mom? She's incapable of feeding her own child. Mm. She can't do it herself. And mm. I believe that's what the story was, mm. um, which to me would say, OK, so is she not eating? Right. <laughs> is, is she, she not a pituitary right, tumor? Right. Like what's actually what's happening? going on with yeah. the mom? And and so there's a lot of, yeah, so I wasn't sure. I also felt like the there's a question of, like, so one thing that I remember thinking, speaking of moms, because Salma Hayek was indeed and still is a mom, but she's in, you know, and, and I've had the question asked. I, I address it in the article to some extent, but is she white? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, how is whiteness operating? Right, how is whiteness operating? It's like almost, I guess she is rendered white, even though she always makes these jokes about how she seemed ridiculous with her she called herself a mexican jumping bean um <laughs> i know right yeah yeah that's a, <laughs> i just thought that was a really interesting thing but she also talks about like um she she rarely addresses kind of the racial dimensions but they're obviously sort of national and and ethnic mm-hmm. um determinations made about her because i she's a lebanese mexican mexican lebanese um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so Ah, where to go with that? Um, basically, there's, I guess, there's what, what is, how are people being racialized in this, in these images, and and mm-hmm. and what that says about motherhood? Mm-hmm. I think are very significant mm-hmm. dimensions when they, when you're talking about babies. <laughs> there's no way you can ever talk about a baby without also thinking about parents. I mean, or moms. Actually, they're no dads. Mm-hmm. There's certainly no dads. So, so yeah. maybe the the moms are negligent, but the dad the dads don't even exist. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is also another interesting dimension to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in when babies are involved, there's a lot that you can think about with babies. Babies babies as innocence, almost kind of like they they produce more sort of analytical questions about right. networks and kin and relationships and and care mm-hmm. that I think other kinds of images or other kinds of beings might not which mm-hmm. is something i did think about this whole like what is it about the baby that makes it such a compelling a compelling like, object of sympathy mm-hmm. i don't want to call babies objects but to some yeah. extent they don't they don't have inner lives in these imagine imaginings they they don't have they don't have any agency they're simply innocents and they're simply victims and they're simply all of these things I know it sounds actually. I feel like I might be sounding crazy talking about babies in her lives, but no, you know, it's. I mean, that's, it's yeah, important when I because I think what, what you're saying is that to produce the rescue humanitarian narrative, there needs to be an object receiving that mm-hmm. rescue intervention that can both be deserving of the intervention, like mm-hmm. be deemed deserving, but also produce enough of a threat to like render the intervention heroic. Mm-hmm. And then the other component is like, there shouldn't be any protest or reaction from the recipient. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that you're saying babies are objects, but you are saying something really important about the extent to which 
the receiver of this kind of racialized aid or you know mm -hmm. rescue intervention is supposed to be a silent non-critical receiver right babies do or well. inf infantilized infantilized like, I, I remember mm -hmm. always having or often talking to people i should say talking to people especially in refugee camps or in these different kinds of aid situations that i, I worked in and 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 having someone say oh well i felt like he treated me like a boy or a small child mm. um or they're treating us like children um and so this sort of infantilization actually is i think part of the mm -hmm. process again it depends on how you think of it what you think of infants <laughs> and how and, and and what and what what that means culturally but i do think that there is something to this um yeah there's something about the baby the baby figure um, that I think also says other things or has other implications for analysis. So, mm -hmm. so I, I think um, our time with you is coming to a close. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, no especially problem. during this busy conference season. I'm Sharon Jacobs. I'm here at the New School for Social Research in New York City with Dr. Miriam Tickton. So Dr. Tickton, outside of your academic work, you've written pieces for public audiences and also done political work with the New Sanctuary Movement, as well as advocacy groups for undocumented migrants in France. So what do you, in particular as an anthropologist, bring to this kind of grassroots media and organizing work? It's a great question. Uh, it's not. I think it depends on the case, what you bring to it, what an anthropologist can bring to organizing or activist work. I mean, the first in the case of my book and the work I was doing with the Sans Papier in France, I felt like I worked with the organizers, but I could bring a broader perspective to it because I had the time to look at and map out all the different actors that were involved. So when they, some of the some of the activists asked me to do an evaluation of their practice. And I felt like I had a different um, stance and a different ability to stand back and give some knowledge about whether their activism was working or not in the ways that they wanted it to. And then ultimately, I think anthropologists, when you map something, you try to come at the ethnographic question from the side, not directly right on. In that sense, I didn't want to do exactly what the activists were doing because they know much more than I could ever know. So you have to ask the question slightly differently. You know, why are the sans-papier organizing this way? What are the terms they're using and so on? And with, that's what brought me to the question of suffering and humanitarianism. It's not because they themselves were organizing around that, but I realized how prominently it figured. So one can use that and go back and say, actually, you know, it might be working in the short term, but maybe your long term strategy is not exactly what you would want it to be. I think anthropology can bring that. With the sanctuary movement, I feel I now can bring my knowledge of humanitarianism and the history of humanitarianism and how it enters into the concept and practice of sanctuary. So I bring both my kind of experience and the method of anthropology. But again, I feel like it's about short-term and long-term goals. So on the one hand, I might be questioning how useful the concept of sanctuary is and what its limits are. On the other hand, I can be fully involved in the politics of sanctuary and saying, I don't want people to be deported right now and I will help however I can to stop that. While you're also evaluating whether sanctuary is the right way to do that. So I think that they, you can be acting both at the, in the short term and the long term and they can sometimes be contradictory and 
when one stops acting in a certain way in the short term because one has knowledge of the long term is, I think, really the question. Right? Do you stop? Do I stop with sanctuary now, knowing that it might have its limits? I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to turn to some of your earlier work, and particularly your book, Casualties of Care, in 2011, um, the year that it was published. And thinking with the long term somewhat, uh, this book came out four years before the so-called European migration crisis. Uh, in the book, you identify what you call an anti-politics of care, where material rights are granted to individuals on the basis of their ability to conform to this sort of figure of morally legitimate suffering. Uh, so since the time that this book came out, we've seen obviously increases in the number of people who are entering Europe, as well as increases in reactionary anti-immigration attitudes. So if you were working on casualties of care, if you were returning to some of these issues today, how would the book be different? How would your your process or the things that you're thinking about be different today? Yeah, it's a, I do think about that a lot. So partly, you know, I know it's called you know, a refugee crisis. And I know anthropologists question that, but I really do want to say this has been going on for a long time. And yes, the numbers are higher, but when I was doing the research at the end of the 1990s, it was also seen as a crisis, right? So I think this periodization of, oh, it's a crisis, oh my God, people are coming in, has to be put in context. That said, I do think it's a different world. And I do think in the 1990s, at least, um, there was a commitment to humanitarian practices and to a humanitarian ethics. Even if you know somebody like Nicolas Sarkozy at the time, you know, before he became the president, was trying to undermine it, there was still an explicit commitment to humanitarianism. And as I was doing my research, it was gradually getting eroded and undermined. And the people I worked with kind of bemoaned this loss of the belief in the humanitarian ethic. And now I think it's fully lost. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not that it's um, people don't use the language, but that it's been so blended with militarism, right, that whatever that humanitarian ethic was, I think, in the 90s is a different version today. Yeah. And so you, you know, patrol in the waters in the name of humanitarianism. But of course, that is also about the surveillance, right? Frontex says it's humanitarian, but really it's about stopping people from getting um, into Europe. So they're so blended that I think it's, um, again, a different kind of a moment. But I also want to say that the critiques of humanitarianism, my book, but lots of others too, were actually also taken on board. So humanitarians aren't, do act differently, and other people act differently in relation to humanitarians, I think because of the critiques that they were issued at that time of the unintended consequences of what they were doing. So again, it's, it's, it, humanitarians and humanitarianism has remade itself in uh, relation to larger political circumstances, but also in relation to the critiques of what it was getting wrong. Um, to follow up on that really quickly, do you see any particular ethic coming um, in solidarity work with migrants in Europe today that is coming to replace or kind of overcome the humanitarianism that you were studying in the 90s? Mm. Yes. Um, so that's the big question. And I get a lot of articles to review that <laughs> that are are trying to evaluate this, I think. And some of the arguments say, oh, this new volunteerism is not humanitarian. Um, I actually find that anthropologists, uh, many people are committed to saving humanitarianism. They really want to reestablish it, reinvigorate it, give it more hope. 
On the other hand, I do think with the solidarity work and the open borders movement, that doesn't need to be the same as humanitarianism. And I think there are a lot of versions of new politics that that use some of the techniques of humanitarianism, that is being present when people land on shore and, and respond with the material goods that people need and yet understand themselves as solidarians, right? And and think in the long term and think about systemic political change, not just about immediate bodily needs, right? And it's not necessarily with an ethic of benevolence or compassion, but rather with this idea that, okay, we're trying to remake the world, all of us together. Uh, I don't know how successful it is. I think that gets caught up in, in the, it's hard not to get caught up in the, in the infrastructures of humanitarianism. But I do think that there are no borders and open borders and sanctuary movements that are challenging these kinds of humanitarian ethics. Um, I'm going to turn the focus a little bit from Europe to the discourses around immigration in the United States today. Mm. Um, so thinking about the way that the U.S. has dealt with immigration and has been trying to prevent non-citizens from exercising their right to asylum, we've seen a sort of fluctuation between policies that separate family members in detention, uh, possibly deporting parents while keeping their children, allowing them to enter the U.S., versus policies that detain families together, but indefinitely. And I'm thinking in particular of the Trump administration, but we can also, of course, think about how Trump is in many ways in keeping with an American tradition of surveillance and physical control over immigrants. Uh, so some of your more recent work has considered innocence and containment as moral concepts that tend to structure Western political discourse. So how might you bring these concepts of innocence and containment to bear on the twin but somewhat opposite policies of family separation and detention? Mm, right, yeah. I mean, I think my answer would be part of your question, which I think is <laughs> your question puts innocence and containment together. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, so in the sense that um, they're both about purity, Right? So containment is one response to the idea of others as contagious or invasive or, or so on, like put them in detention centers, put them in prisons, deport them, get them out, get, get them out of this body politic which they're going to contaminate. Um, so one answer is to kind of contain them. The other answer is to parse and to sort and decide which ones are going to be not contagious, as it were, and not going to um, be a threat to the body politic. And that's an innocence is used as the strategy to parse and uh, and um, evaluate. Um, and so in that case, okay, children are innocent. We'll take them out and let them be in the world, and therefore they will not be held with their parents in detention. Um, but you know they're part of the same strategy, which is basically keep out these people who are threatening. So either we see children as part of the threat or we separate them out. But effectively, it's all about these ideas of, of threat, invasiveness, and, and so on. And the idea that we want to keep something pure. So, um, so I would say that, you know, if you're going to move beyond those kind of politics, you have to get rid of both of those strategies, right? This idea of using innocence as a way to separate out deserving or undeserving, refugee versus economic migrant, um, child versus adolescent, whatever. Have to get rid of that altogether. And get rid of the policies of containment and imprisonment, which of course are part of the larger prison industrial complex. Uh, and I think 
rather than go with those, we have to go with ideas of contamination. Right? We're all contaminated. There is no such thing as purity. And the opposite of innocence is not guilty. It's not, uh, it's basically contamination or it's impurity um, or it's non-innocence. And I think that's where we have to go is to say it's an incredibly messy, non-innocent world and that we have to start with that as our base point and assume that we're already living in that kind of a world. Uh, you've also spoken a little bit about, uh, in your written academic works, about Americans' sort of reluctance to talk about racial injustice and belief in a post-racial future as another kind of innocence. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that dimension of the, the racialized connection with innocence. Yeah. So obviously one of them is this history of, of race and childhood and children, the definition of it. I mean, the other one is stated very clearly by James Baldwin, right? Um, when he talks about the crime of uh, the American people, meaning the white folks, as being the crime of claim, claiming innocence. You know, he's saying that is the problem, that they, after all they have done, still claim to be innocent. Um, and it's, in that sense, it's a, it's a willing not, a willingness to not know. And innocence has its roots in, in these, you know, the Latin, the etymology of it is kind of, um, you know, innocence and not to harm and innocere not to know. And in this case, I think, it draws on the willingness not to know. I don't want to know about the racial hierarchies of which I am a part and which I reproduce in my daily life. That's, um, I think, where it comes from. And the idea that we could have a post-racial reality is, I think now everybody knows it's absurd, but even during the time of Obama, it was absurd, obviously. Um, and I think, again, Baldwin points that out ages ago. Um, we're just seeing, we're seeing it in, in its full color right now. <laughs> but yes, I, I do think innocence in that sense is one way that people claim to enact power by ignoring their race, racial privilege or by using their racial privilege and pretending not to acknowledge it. So one thing that the sort of American disavowal of race talk might facilitate is what we saw recently with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings where this white man who's been accused of sexual assault um, and his followers are essentially able to say, oh, he was a boy. He he was the innocent one here. He was a child, the figure of innocence, essentially. Uh, whereas we've seen in the past few years, so many black children being gunned down po by police, being seen not as children, but as figures of, of danger and threat. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to this um, disidentification or um, disconnection. Yes, it, it's so powerfully articulated by that example, the ways in which only some people can harness innocence and the way to power is to harness innocence. I didn't know. I don't remember. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. And you're completely right. One way to, to cast him as innocent was by saying that he was uh, he was not an adult at that time. Therefore, he was not fully knowing. He was naive. He can't be held responsible for it. Of course, it's not just uh, race, but class. I mean, he's the elite of the elite, right? And is able to claim it because of this. And I think putting it in relation to to black boys is a you know is a super revealing. The other thing, though, is that. 
um, of course, the gender dynamics of this, which is that innocence is also defined against sexuality, right, for women. So for women, innocence means sexual innocence. So, um, you know, she was never able to, Blasey Ford was never able to claim innocence. And she didn't even try. But that, that's the nature of the concept, which is that he can use it, even though it was, to many of us, blatantly absurd. Uh, but she never even had the chance to, to mobilize it because it has been constructed as a term against women's sexual being. Rape is always a questioning of the innocence of women. Right? It's always an assumption starts from their lack of innocence right? and the innocence of the men, right? which we just saw. Thank you all so much for listening, and a special thanks to our interviewers, Sarah Rendell and Sharon Jacobs. In our upcoming episodes, we'll be speaking with Socio Marcidi Vargas and Carolyn Sufferin about anthropology and the clinic, as well as Laura Kuhnreuther and Aicha Chubukchu on modes of democratic subjectivity. So be on the lookout for those over the next few months. Until then, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and to tell your friends, colleagues, and students about the great work our guests are doing. Take care, and we'll be with you again soon. <laughs>